Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, as you may know, a lot has happened in the energy sector recently. You know, internationally, the COVID-19 crisis has caused a huge drop in oil demand, a lot of the tension between the OPEC nations and domestically here in the U.S. Uh, we witnessed for the first time in history that the oil futures price uh, that was supposed to be delivered in May actually collapsed to negative 37 to negative $40 a barrel at one point, which has never happened uh, in the history. Uh, and, and we here at Policy Punchline felt quite compelled to talk about the recent fluctuations, and we're very, very honored to be joined by one of the most leading experts in the world on uh, energy policy, uh, Professor Jason Bordoff. He is the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. And before that, he was a special assistant to President Obama and the senior director for energy and climate change on the staff of the National Security Council. And before that, he has held various senior uh, positions uh, on the White House National Economic Council and such. Uh, and he also hosts his own podcast, Columbia Energy <laughs> Exchange, uh, that features very in-depth conversations with some of the world's top energy and, and climate leaders. So uh, it's, it's a very long way of just saying how honored we are to, to have you joining us uh, remotely from New York. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Bordoff. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, and co-hosting this show with, with me is my friend Owen Ingo. He is a junior in Princeton, and he is uh, leading our energy segment. Uh, I'm the kind of the generalist here who doesn't really know anything about energy, so he's the one uh, that, that keeps me updated and, and educated on all those matters. So thanks so much for joining me, Owen. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to discuss today. Uh, Professor Bordoff, so why don't we just kick off uh, and, and talk about the recent uh, volatility in the energy market. Why, why don't we just start from there? Because a lot has really happened and maybe we can focus on the oil sector. Uh, many people have known that uh, there's a lot of tension between the OPEC nations. It seems that the Saudis and the Russians and the Americans are all fighting about something. Uh, would you mind uh, giving us your take on the issue, your perspective uh, of the issue, how you think that things are shaping up? Uh, that's a very general question, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's been a pretty, for those people like myself who've been studying energy markets for a long time, this has been, um, this has been a pretty unprecedented and so many ways what's happening in the world is unprecedented right now. That's true. No less true in energy. And so look, the oil industry is no stranger to boom and bust cycles going back uh, over a century. But the, what, what happened was that, uh, it, the necessary policy public health response to this pandemic was social distancing and lockdown measures to varying degrees across the world. So people were told to stay home, stop traveling. And, uh, you know, about 90% of transportation fuel is oil. And so uh, oil demand collapsed and, 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 and the oil, oil supply and demand goes up and down, but we've never seen, something of this magnitude happened this quickly where oil demand fell roughly 25%, uh, you know, in the month of April. And uh, that, that, that was a shock to the oil market we, we've never seen before. Typically, if demand goes down, basic economics, uh, price will go down. And then in response to lower prices, there's less investment. And over time, you start to see supply go down. But, but the system literally could not respond quickly enough because once you drill a well, that well is going to usually produce for a while. Um, you need, even when prices are low, there's still oil coming out of the ground. It's costly and difficult to literally shut that off. 
And so what happened was we ran into a situation where we just were physically running out of places to put all of this oil. We started to, significant concerns were raised that we were going to hit storage limits. And that is why in the United States, you saw for just a brief period of a day or two, the price of oil actually go negative because the traders on Wall Street who have probably never seen a barrel of oil, they trade paper, uh, a bet on the price of oil essentially up and down. Uh, they had contracts for a particular month that were about to expire. They couldn't find people to take those off their hand for the following month. So prices had to fall low enough in order to induce people to actually shut off the wells in mid-flow, shut in production. And that um, doesn't happen very often. It's costly to do. It can cause damage to the wells. Uh, and, and that's been the result. We, we also saw oil supply come off the market because uh, OPEC and non-OPEC members, mainly Russia, reached a historic agreement to take 10 million barrels a day of oil supply off the market to try to help stabilize things. But even that wasn't enough when 25 or 30 million uh, of demand is falling. And what was interesting about that geopolitically was that uh, at the very beginning of COVID-19, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia sort of had a spat between them because they couldn't agree to cut production. Uh, Saudi Arabia actually responded to that by increasing its production. And it was the United States that played matchmaker and brought Saudi and Russia back together to the table and kind of pressured them, uh, President Trump, to figure things out, patch things up and cut supply. And that's interesting because, you know, just the geopolitical dynamics of the U.S., helping Saudi and, and Russia come closer together, but also that the United States would even want to do that in the first place. I mean, for decades, we've come to believe that lower oil prices are good for the U.S., not the other way around. But over the last decade, uh, I think 1986 was the last time I can remember a president, uh, well, it was actually Vice President George H.W. Bush, Reagan's vice president, in 1986 went to Riyadh to ask the Saudis, to make oil prices higher. <laughs> and uh, that was the last time because, you know, we were a huge oil importer. And so low, low prices are better for consumers at the pump. Uh, but what's happened over the last decade is the U.S. became the largest oil producer in the world, was on the cusp of becoming a net oil exporter. And suddenly an oil price crash uh, causes a lot more pain in the United States to companies and workers, particularly oil producing states like Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota. So you had a bunch of senators who represent those states get really angry and say, we got to do something to push up the price of oil. And eventually President Trump took up the mantle uh, and, and, and pushed other countries, namely Saudi and Russia, to do that. That was a fantastic overview of the situation. Um, and you touched on a lot of interesting domestic and international uh, developments. I was wondering... So you wrote a fascinating article about two weeks ago uh, pronouncing that Saudi Arabia um, was the winner or, or came out stronger than some of the other oil producing nations. Um, what were some of the factors that you identified as um, leading Saudi Arabia in, in their position? And uh, why might there, in some sense, rival at this point, Russia um, be left behind because of this um, kind of fluctuation? Yeah, I think, well, first, when you're writing pieces like that, you're always looking for something a little counterintuitive because it helps to draw mm -hmm. attention to it. But I think what I was responding to was every time oil prices collapse, there's this sort of same stream of articles about how petrostates are imperiled and oil prices are low and we're going to see political instability and we're going to see fragile states collapse and, and, and oil, all oil producers are lumped together. 
And I'm not sure that that's right. Um, it is certainly the case that oil producers like Iraq or Nigeria that are economically fragile are going to have a lot of difficulty uh, dealing with an oil price collapse. Um, a country like Saudi Arabia also is, 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 is impacted in its fiscal situation. Uh, and we already see the Saudis cutting domestic spending, cutting programs, delaying investments. I mean, this is painful, but, but they're in a, a little bit better place because they have half a trillion dollars roughly in reserves that they can draw on. They have demonstrated an ability to borrow successfully in the international market. So between drawing on their reserves and borrowing, they can weather the storm. Then the question is, I'm, I, I was interested in thinking not just about the immediate oil price collapse. And, you know, we'll see how long that lasts. Is it six months, 12 months? You know, but, but it's not, I don't think it's years um, before oil prices recover. What does it look like in the slightly less short term, uh, medium term, a couple of years out? And there, I think there's a reasonable scenario where um, prices, where, where boom follows bust, where prices could actually spike. And, uh, and that from a fiscal standpoint, at least that could be good for a producer like, like Saudi Arabia. And the reason for that is, I mean, a big uncertainty here is the demand outlook. How quickly will oil demand come back? Once the virus passes, and, and even we don't know when that is, what does it even mean for the virus to pass? Does it, we have to wait until we have a vaccine? Are we going to develop mechanisms for testing and tracing and social distancing that will allow us to reopen the way, you know, um, South Korea or some other countries have demonstrated they can do. Um, so we just don't. And then at that point, does do people go back to pretty much life the way it used to be getting in cars and driving heavy duty trucks and getting on airplanes or, you know, is that going to take longer? So uh, the evidence we're seeing so far suggests to me that it's, <clears throat> it's probably going to be a while before people are getting on, long-haul international flights, but a lot of the uses of oil demand will, will come back. Uh, the data in China shows that freight travel is back to where it was before. Car travel in the cities is pretty much, is actually a little bit higher where than it was before because no one's taking mass transit. They don't want to be crowded uh, together on subways, so they're actually driving instead. Uh, intercity travel is down because people are still not, not traveling too much. But I think what that tells me is oil demand is going to rebound pretty close if not all the way back to where it was before. And the question is, is that by the end of this year or the end of next year or something? So oil demand comes back. I think supply could lag oil demand because U.S. shale oil production, which, you know, the U.S. had gone from five to 13 million barrels a day. And now U.S. shale is going to fall probably around three million barrels a day. I mean, it's going to fall really steeply. And once prices recover, shale will start growing again. But I don't think it's going to grow at the same rate that it did before. There was a, a some measure of froth or irrational exuberance in shale provided by access to easy credit. And so some of that is going to be pulled back. And so I think at an oil price of, say, $50, shale may be growing a couple of hundred thousand barrels a day, not one million barrels per day per year. So that growth is going to be a bit slower. I mentioned before how you know, a lot of oil around the world is being shut in and somewhere around, I would guess, four or five million barrels a day of shut in production is at risk of semi-permanent damage, meaning it will never come back or it'll be expensive and time consuming to come back to market. And then you have the large oil companies, Chevron, Exxon, et cetera, that are slashing their CapEx budgets. So you combine all those factors on the supply side. And if demand does come back reasonably well, 
uh, you know, boom could follow bust, which is not kind of the history of, 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 um, of the oil industry. And then the last dimension with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was, look, the Saudi Arabia is not in a very good place in Washington, D.C. for reasons we, we know. And, and that is on both sides of the aisle. The rhetoric of Vice President Biden, the rhetoric of several Republican senators is, um, is, is quite strong and harsh. Uh, but this was a reminder that at least when it comes to oil markets, it, energy dominance and energy independence is a fallacy. It doesn't really matter how much oil we produce and how much oil we import or export. If the price of oil collapses or spikes, we're still going to feel that pain in the U.S., whether it's at the pump or for workers and companies in the oil patch, depending on whether prices are going up or down. And I was struck by the fact that for all the talk of extraordinary remedies to do something about this oil instability, from reconstituting the Texas Railroad Commission, which last you know put quotas on oil 50 years ago, to oil import tariffs, to the G20 coming up with a management, a supply agreement, there are all these like crazy ideas out there. And in the end, none of them happened. The only thing the United States was able to do to do something about, you know, stabilizing the oil market was what we've done for decades, which is call Riyadh, and in this case, call Moscow too, and say, can you please do something about this? And it's just a reminder that, you know, until we start using a lot less oil, which we need to do for climate change too, um, that that's still a, a, a point of geopolitical leverage that the kingdom of Saudi Arabia uniquely has, because it's the only country in the world that is willing and able to hold spare capacity meaning it is willing to put oil on the market and take oil off the market uh, in order to kind of play a little bit of that balancer role. There were a lot of different uh, topics there that we could easily dive into. Um, the U.S. supply growth is something that is absolutely fascinating to watch and uh, the different political dynamics that are happening on an international stage and the Trump administration's role in that. Um, one question and and. Uh, point that you mentioned was thinking about some of those states that might be hit hardest by this. Um, so you kind of uh, mentioned that there's a lot of dooms doomsayers out there, or whatever that phrase is. Um, but what what is your view on some of these countries like Venezuela, uh, Nigeria, Iraq? Like, what does this crash uh, mean for them, and um, what what happens if this is a prolonged? Uh, uh, oil glut? Well, as I said, it's, I mean, it, it is going to be really painful for a lot of these companies, which are seeing, you know, declines in GDP growth uh, in many uh, OPEC countries. And many of these were already fragile states to begin with. The Venezuela is basically a failed state. It's tragic, basic foodstuffs, medical equipment, uh, supplies in the grocery stores are already scarce. It's just a tragic situation for what was once a quite wealthy country, uh, the largest oil reserves in the world, actually, in, in Venezuela. Um, and then and then states that are in the midst of, of, of conflict internally or something else. So this is just going to be an accelerant to make that much worse. And I do think you're going to need to see uh, the IMF step in to provide some debt relief to some of these countries or, or, or some assistance in, in different ways, because they simply don't have the ability to make their way through this um, in, in, in quite the same way. You know, a country like Angola would be, would be, would be another one. 
So the uh, on the international stage, we obviously have uh, the IMF, as you mentioned, that might provide some uh, debt relief. Domestically, do you see any type of uh, relief coming to the way of uh, some of these oil states that are having their budgets uh, hit pretty hard? Um, one, one thing of interest that I've studied a little bit is uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is um, kind of a, a fascinating um, topic and, and a thing that uh, the U.S. has, but uh, doesn't utilize um, all that all that often, or it isn't isn't part of the uh, n- news cycle all that often. Um, so, what are kind of your thoughts on um, the the uh, relief that might be coming the way of some of these oil companies or some of these oil states, and um, possibly the use uh, of the strategic petroleum reserve? I've read articles that um, talk about how Trump is planning to lease out some of the reserve. I don't know quite um, how typical that is or if that's already underway, but I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on that as well. Well, I think for some of the petrostates we talked about a minute ago, you you know, it's, there may be ways in which the oil price gets a boost because you have, say, OPEC come together to cut production 10 million barrels a day. It's getting a boost, you know, because when when um, for all the talk of coordinate, it, it was a really extraordinary thing a few weeks ago. So we've never seen that before, where OPEC met in an emergency meeting to cut production. And now it's not just OPEC, it's OPEC plus is what it's called, which is OPEC plus other oil producers, namely Russia. But 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 even that wasn't enough because it's just it, it, they, they can't cut production. They're about 40 percent of the world uh, oil supply. They can't offset by themselves. Uh, 25 or 30 percent decline. So then, then the next day they had a meeting of energy ministers from G20 countries, and 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 the discussion was: Are we going to see some extraordinary, you know, G20 commitment to cut oil production? And um, I was, I did not think that would happen, and and it didn't. Basically, what happened was you had a bunch of free market economies who came to the meeting and said, "We promise you, we commit to an oil production cut." OPEC didn't want to do it if other people weren't doing it too. And so they got a commitment from other countries, including the United States, to, quote, cut production because low prices were going to force production to fall and you know, not because the government decided to do it. And that, in fact, is what is happening. So as uh, the oil market now is already rebalancing, we've seen oil prices rise. The, the, that probably is not going to be enough to help you know, Nigeria, Angola, et cetera. And so there will be calls for IMF assistance, IMF loans, in, in uh, support in different ways. Um, in the U.S., there has been a lot of talk about other ways to prop up the oil price or help producers. Uh, and you mentioned some of them. One was to fill up the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve holds around 700 million barrels of oil and salt caverns created in the 19th. 19- Obama. We had uh, the civil war in Libya. As a result, a million and a half barrels a day of supply from Libya was taken off the market. Oil prices went up pretty high, $125 a barrel or so. And we uh, did an emergency release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in partnership with other countries in, in the OECD, in the, in the International Energy Agency. Um, the there's 77 million barrels. There was 77 million barrels kind of empty. Was it's not filled all the way to the top. So one idea was, can we just fill it up? Which um, 
became a partisan issue. You had a lot of Democrats say, no, we can't do that because we, we're not going to do anything to help the oil industry. There is an argument to say it's not about helping the oil industry. It's just if oil's cheap, let's fill it up when it's cheap. It's better than filling it up when it's expensive. But but there was no support on Capitol Hill for allocating funding to do that. So the Trump administration was unable to do it. What it ended up doing in the end was making some of that space available for companies to use for to, to kind of store, basically pay the government to store their own oil there for a little bit. Um, there were other ideas like paying companies not to produce oil, uh, limiting imports of oil to the United States. Uh, and again, in the end, some of these require Congress and that was never going to happen because anything that would be beneficial for the oil industry is pretty partisan these days. Uh, and there's, there's uh, a limit to what the federal government can do. Uh, as I mentioned, there was discussion that the state of Texas might set restrictions on how much oil could be produced in Texas. And that didn't happen either because partly because the industry itself is opposed. So you have the large companies like Chevron and Exxon, and then you have a lot of these small indebted companies in say the shale, the shale patch in Texas, and they don't even agree. They have different views on what should be done. So there was no even agreement from the industry on what to do. Uh, and then what happened was government, government action kind of doesn't happen quickly. Governments tend to act slowly. And by the time even Texas was starting to think about it, it was almost too late because market forces had done the work of rebalancing, which is why U.S. production is falling off a cliff right now. I was really surprised to hear that you talk about uh, kind of the, the boom and bust cycles and you thinking that uh, the oil demand will kind of rebound pretty close to what we have now, at least in the short term. And, and you also mentioned how the Saudi is perfectly kind of willing to hold off oil and take oil on and off the market as it usually does. But it seemed to me that in this crisis, Saudi Arabia was pretty reluctant in terms of uh, keeping the oil off the market, right? It seems that the competition between those countries was, was really vicious, that it almost kind of hinted at as the beginning of an endgame, such that, uh, you, you know, traditionally what Saudi could do is that they could simply keep the oil underground and, and wager that oil price will come back up again in the future and simply borrow against the asset. And, and their patience was quite common. But, but why not this time? Because it seemed to me, you know, Columbia University's Adam Tooze actually gave this uh, potential explanation that countries are just scared that this is really the old endgame right now because of all the activism surround, surrounding uh, climate change issues. And so I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, are, are the Saudi and Russians' response uh, still kind of the same as they were before? Or are they markedly different in the sense that they are concerned that the uh, the days of fossil fuels are numbered. It's certainly um, an increasing concern. Uh, and I do think that some things will be different coming out of COVID-19. Some won't. I don't think that the so-called ESG pressures, the social and political pressure on, on oil companies, on um, investment in, in oil I think those will continue to be there. I mean, oil was already falling into disfavor because it, over the last 10 years has been a pretty terrible sector to be invested in, hasn't delivered very good returns. And on top of that, it's kind of increasingly facing pressure over the urgency of, of moving toward a clean energy economy, dealing with climate change, which we must do and are nowhere close to being on track to do. Um, so I think that, and I don't think that pressure is going away. I think that pressure will still be there. It might even be stronger coming out of this. Having said that, uh, we use 100 million barrels of oil a day. The, we put 4.2 billion people under a lockdown, and the International Energy Agency projects this year that oil demand will fall 
that's a big collapse, but it's not 100%. <laughs> so it's just a reminder of how difficult it is to get off of oil. Uh, and there are some things where we know, we think we know how to do it, like electrifying cars, but cars are only 25% of oil demand. So then you need to do ships and planes and uh, heavy duty trucks and, uh, and in industrial uses and petrochemicals. Um, some of those things are a lot harder to do and, and going to take a while. So I think that uh, the, many petrostates like Saudi Arabia are concerned about long-term move away from oil, but I don't think they think it's happening quickly. Um, and, and, and so I, I don't know that it, I don't think it hugely changes how they think about their role in how much oil they put on the market today. I think that is mostly driven by, uh, a revenue maximization calculation, price times volume. If you can cut a bit or increase a bit, and what is that going to do to the price? And what does that mean for our overall revenue? And importantly, geopolitics, the fact that, you know, the relationship that Saudi has with the United States is important to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And when the president of the United States goes on Twitter or picks up the phone privately and says, we really want you to do something, and that matters, right? And then there's, that's part of the diplomatic dialogue between the two countries. So you don't think that the calculation regarding climate change or the long-term shift to renewable energy and, and such that should not be part of the calculation that the Saudis or the Russians had in this particular COVID-related oil drop. You don't think that? I don't think it was a huge part of how they thought about the decision of whether to cut production 10 million barrels a day in the midst of this you know, historic price collapse. I think it is part of what motivates a country like Saudi Arabia with, with mixed success, frankly, but to, to develop something like its long-term Vision 2030 plan, to think about diversifying its economy. It does want to be less oil dependent and develop other parts of its economy because it knows that, you know, the days of being able to rely solely on oil revenue are, are limited, not in a matter of months, but, you know, in, in a multi-decade time horizon. Um, it's just very challenging uh, to do that. And, and then they're, they're learning that. They're, they're learning how difficult it is to diversify an economy. So let's maybe dig a little bit deeper into this kind of greater picture of energy transition. How, how much do you think the Russians or the Saudis are truly scared of those things? Because I, I heard a pretty similar explanation uh, when Aramco, the Saudi uh, state oil company, did this very underwhelming IPO a few months ago. And people were just saying that the Saudis were so rushed into actually getting the corporation to become publicly traded because they really needed to make their all their assets liquid so that they could you know liquidate their cash whatever uh and it just shows somehow that their calculation is that uh, the days of fossil fuels fuels is numbered so i would really love to hear your thoughts on whether there's any validity to that argument here uh in, in any sort of recent moves by the saudi state well i can't i mean i can't obviously i don't know what they were thinking i can't <laughs> I can't speak for their motivation. Um, my my guess would be that they are concerned about the ability to depend on oil revenue in the long term, but that is a multi-decade time horizon, not you know a, a very near-term time horizon. And it is a sobering reminder of how difficult it is to deal with climate change and take targets like one and a half or two degrees seriously. And to get off of oil or, or, or deal with it for, for climate purposes, um, that you know, for, for we, we we've had goals and targets 
and, and, and annual UN meetings for a very long time. And in almost every one of those years, except in the time of recession or pandemic, oil demand has gone up, not down. Oil demand goes up each and every year. And the primary drivers of the growth in oil demand are population growth and GDP growth. And it is true that we've seen significant growth in electric vehicles, but it's still a small share of the total. So I think like climate math is really hard to make work. And so I think like one, one way to think about that is the, if you, you know, the cost of solar has fallen 90% in the last decade, the cost of wind has fallen 50%, the cost of batteries has fallen something like 85%. The two thirds of the investment in new power generation last year went into clean energy. I mean, these are amazing statistics. And it, every one of, almost, almost every one of those years for the last decade, coal use went up and natural gas use went up and oil use went up because both of those things can be true at the same time, right? The history of, of, of the energy sector, we always talk about an energy transition. And, and, and if people think of an energy transition chart in their mind, usually what they think of is a chart going from zero to 100% starting in like 1850. And you see these great shifts. It went from wood to coal to, natu- to, to oil to gas and increasingly renewables, although it's still pretty small. But they're shifting as a share of the total. If you look at that same chart, not as a percentage of the total, but total BTUs, total energy use, we've never used less of anything. We're using more wood now than we did in the 1800s. And because total energy demand is rising, right? Uh, Emerging markets around the world are growing. We're South Asia, India, China. So the total pie is getting much bigger. So as a, but, but dealing with climate change means not just meeting incremental energy demand growth with, with, with clean energy, but it means substituting the 80% of the energy mix around the world today that still comes from fossil fuels. And that number hasn't changed in 30 years. 30 years ago, it was 80%. Today, it's 80%. And it's a bigger number because the denominator has gotten bigger. We need to bring that pretty close, to, if not all the way to zero. Um, that's just a staggering challenge. And, uh, and, and we're, we're really nowhere close to, to being there yet. So it's, it's going to take uh, more time, it's going to take more policy support. I mean, this year, carbon emissions, again, we put the economy on hold. Carbon emissions this year in response to COVID-19 with 4 billion people under some form of lockdown, is going to, uh, carbon emissions are going to go down 8% this year. We've never seen anything like that. If you took the target 1.5 degrees warming seriously, which is what nations committed to in the Paris Agreement, carbon emissions need to go down each and every year for the next decade, 8%. So what COVID-19 achieved this year, we need to do every year. Uh, and I think, uh. I think it is, unfortunately, there's good reason to be skeptical that we're going to get there. Or pessimistic. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> uh, so some of the trends that you were mentioning and just in terms of COVID and its relation to climate change, a huge topic these days is thinking about what this pandemic means for the future of clean energy. So in your view, uh, what what do you see going forward? Do you see uh, a hopeful future as people identify this as more of an issue or perhaps um, the, uh, people focus a little bit more on um, simple economic choices and, and perhaps utilize their cars more and, and don't feel the need to buy EVs and don't feel the need to put up solar panels? So what, in your view, are you seeing going forward? 
Well, I think there's like three broad categories to that. One is just like the economic incentives, as you said. The other is social changes, and the other is policy dynamics. And so the in the immediate, I mentioned a minute ago, oil demand is going to fall 8% this year. Coal is going to fall 9%. Natural gas is going to fall 5%. The only form of energy that's going to grow this year is renewables. And partly that's because renewables is so cheap. I mean, once you, once you, in, once you have the upfront capital expense of you know, a solar project, it's almost free to run. So renewables tend to be first in the dispatch order and, and get policy support as well. Um, we have seen a sharp decline in investment in new renewable projects because the whole economy has kind of frozen up. Um, so I think in the immediate term, we, uh, we're going to see some, it's going to be a mixed effect, increased use of clean energy, but also some cutback in investment in, in new projects. It was just a study this week about you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs being lost in clean energy in the United States. So all sectors are being hit. Um, I think uh, the, the more interesting questions are, 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 are a little less knowable. Whether they're in the positive direction might be longer term structural shifts in society and how people think about work. You know, we're building a center on global energy policy. It's growing quickly. We were in the middle before this pandemic of thinking about how we're going to raise the money to have a new building somewhere in the Columbia campus. Maybe that won't be necessary. Maybe we'll think differently about the ability to work remotely. I mean, we're kind of all traveling half the time anyway. I Maybe. thought you were going to say that they were so, so happy to give you more money now to give <laughs> yeah, that right. building. Yeah. Well, that would be nice too. But yeah. uh, but but everyone's going to be rethinking how they commute and how they work. And that may have impacts um, on, on energy in the longer term. Um, on my podcast that you mentioned a minute ago, I spoke with the Indian oil and gas minister last week. And, you know, we've all seen the pictures over Delhi of clear skies and, and, uh, and people like that. So, so will there be some social push to preserve that and keep that going that could point in a positive direction? And I think that's certainly possible. Uh, what I'm worried about, and, and the other pos 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 possibility is um, in the United States, we're spending trillions of dollars and many other parts of the world are spending trillions of dollars too, on economic stimulus and economic recovery. And if you're, we're smart about how we spend those dollars, we should be making investments, not just to rebuild the same way things looked before, but to make some investments today in uh, a more sustainable energy economy moving forward. The thing I worry about is that I think history suggests that when economies are suffer when economies are weak and, and people are feeling pinched in their, in their, in their pocketbook, Uh, that tends to be the overwhelming policy priority. And I worry that the ambition of environmental policy may, may wane if uh, there's a real or perceived trade-off between economic growth and environmental policy, and people feel like the focus now just has to be on the environment. I mean, you think about, you know, the the quintessential, you know, poster child of this is like the yellow vest protests in in in, in Paris. You raise fuel prices slightly and people take to the streets, I think this is a moment when energy prices are low to have, take away fossil fuel subsidies, to have a price on carbon, but it's going to be hard to do that in a time when people are losing their jobs and really concerned about their economic future. So let's talk about that. You know, you just mentioned about how it's going to be hard to make people truly worry about some of those climate change issues, I suppose, in moments of great economic uncertainty. And a lot of people have argued that, 
you know, coronavirus crisis is only a preview of what's to come for climate change. Uh, and, and the analog is kind of twofold. First of all, is that climate change is also a worldwide time-sensitive crisis. I mean, not maybe in a matter of days or months, but in a matter of a couple of years. And second of all, the, the, analogy, the analogy is that governments must act very quickly and decisively in the common interest and sometimes against, you know, the quote-unquote personal liberty in order to achieve very uh, decisive results. Uh, so, so in that sense, do you think after people experienced this COVID-19 crisis, will they say, oh, it turns out I would like to sacrifice a little bit of my this in order to achieve yeah. this greater good? I, I hope so. And I think we, I, I, that should be the outcome. And I think we need to figure out how to better communicate, frankly, the urgency of climate change so people have that reaction. I think you're exactly right in the analogy, which is, you know, you see all these people saying that the, the cure is worse than the disease and armed protesters in state capitals telling us we have to let people go back to work because uh, people are losing their jobs. And, and of course, there is immense economic pain and suffering that is happening as a result of the lockdown measures that we've put into place. I think the question though, for me is not what is the, the alternative to these lockdown measures and this economic pain is not doing nothing. It's letting the pandemic kind of rage out of control. And so uh, the, the, the alternative of doing nothing from an economic standpoint, not just a public health standpoint, could end up being worse. We could cause more damage to the economy if we don't 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 incur some economic pain now, climate change is similar, right? Because uh, climate change, dealing with climate change has a cost. I mean, it, it, investing in there, there are certain areas where clean energy is the cheapest. It's even cheaper than than fossil fuels. But not to get to deep decarbonization. If you want to achieve zero net zero carbon economy, there is a cost to doing that. It is more costly than than the alternative. If you don't account for the impacts of climate change, I mean, the, the, but but the issue is um, there is a cost to decarbonizing, but there is a higher cost to suffering the impacts of climate change. And I think it's that last part that people, to frankly, just don't really uh, appreciate broadly. You know, we just had the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, and I was reflecting on that, and I was thinking about what was it like in 1970 when the one out of every 10 Americans took to the streets. And it was across partisan lines and it was old and young and it wasn't a partisan issue. It was the American people saying after the 50s and 60s of smog in our cities and lakes and waterways that you couldn't drink the water and the resign saying don't swim here because it's toxic water. I mean, it was finally the American people just saying we can't live like this anymore. We, we need we, we can't do this to our air and water. It's not it's not acceptable. We can't it's not OK. We need that level of urgency to build among people that the impacts of climate change are not acceptable. And we're, it's, it's, that's starting to change with student school strikes and Greta Thunberg on the cover of Time magazine, but, but we're not there yet. So that's a really interesting point and one that I've thought a lot about as a member of our generation who's going to be dealing with these issues for our lifetimes. One phrase that I really love that you, you use and you have used is uh, turning ambition into action. So how do you think that we can do that as uh, young people hoping to make a difference or young people trying to work on these issues? How, do, you, do you see the uh, different messaging techniques or different things coming about in how we frame this issue? Like how, how would you approach this um, or how are you approaching this and, and how can we help approach it to, to help spur this action? 
Well, I mean, first, what you're doing right now is one good example of how to do that, which is helping people understand the issue better and your own interest and, and passion for it and, and and deep expertise in it. Uh, as you, if you, you've heard me over the last, you know, 30, 40 minutes, you can hear some degree of concern and skepticism and, and, and glass half empty. But I will say that like <laughs> one, one of the things that makes me most optimistic is, is being a professor on a campus and seeing the students on that campus and the way they think about this issue and how concerned they are and how passionate they are about it. Because I, I think we need both. I mean, we, we need, um, we need, what I spend my time doing uh, is not activism. What I spend my time doing is a little more wonky or technocratic. It's thinking about policy design and when we have a moment of opportunity in Washington to do something on climate, what what's going to deliver the biggest bang for the buck? What's going to make the biggest dent in emissions? So what does smart policy design look like? That moment to do what, to, to take, to, to put what, what I'm spending every day thinking about, the moment when that might become a reality, it might be politically possible, that's not going to happen without activism. That's not going to happen without people taking to the streets. Um, and so, so we need, we, we need a, an increased level of urgency and we need young people demanding that companies and political leaders um, act. And, uh, and, and again, that is, it is, it is, if you look at polling of the American people on climate change, uh, I, I worry that it, I mean, overwhelmingly, the American people believe climate change is real. It's not climate denial, but but it's not for many Americans. It's not yet their number like one or two priority. It's still further down relative to the economy and jobs and other things. So that needs to change. It is it is promising that that is already changing. It's changing on both sides of the aisle for Democrats and Republicans, although they start from a very different place. But you see movement for both. And uh, and it's especially promising in how you see it in the demographic data. I mean, the level of prioritization that people in their 20s put on this issue is totally different than people in their 50s or 60s. And so that, I think, is going to continue to build. And it's going to, it's going to become a, a political necessity that elected representatives uh, have, have an answer. It's not going to be sufficient to ignore the issue. I mean, you're gonna, you might disagree about what the right answer is. But even Republicans increasingly, and we see some signs of this, not enough yet, but some signs that they feel they also feel the need to say, yes, I care about this issue. I have a plan for it. It's more market driven. It's more based on innovation or something. But like they're not just saying I don't care about it. I mean, some are, but but more more are not saying that more more and more are saying like, yes, I, I agree. We need to kind of in some ways the Green New Deal was almost helpful in that regard because, you know, the, the Republicans could attack the Green New Deal as being like a ban on airplanes and hamburgers and socialism or whatever. But the next question was, so what do you want to do? What's your alternative? And, uh, and, and you started to see a small group of moderate Republicans that said we would put a price on carbon or we would invest in innovation. Like it wasn't sufficient to the scale of the problem, but at least they were engaging in discussions about solutions. So what would be your policy prescriptions in that sense? What are some of the things that you think would be nice to implement in the next five to 10 years? Do you think something of the scale of a Green New Deal would be necessary? Well, the Green New Deal, you know, is, 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 uh, it's a short document. It's a set of goals and ambitions. It's not necessarily a policy. It's not a set of policy action items you would take to achieve it. 
the goal of, of net zero emissions is one we have to work toward. And of course, the Green New Deal framed it in a broader context, not just of climate, but linking that to other social objectives of inequality, environmental justice, uh, public health, housing, uh, all the rest. So then the question is, how do we get to that goal? And, uh, and, and there's no one way to do it. I think my, my focus is what are the things that make the biggest dent in emissions and do it at the lowest cost possible? Uh, I think you, we absolutely should have a price on carbon that is, in my view, necessary but not sufficient. Uh, and, and it actually makes a bigger difference than people realize it does. Uh, in the modeling we've done, you can see that a $50 a ton price on carbon would reduce emissions in 2030 relative to uh, uh, 2005 by by about 40%. So that's a pretty big dent in emissions. Uh, we would, I think we need a big investment from the government in energy innovation and R&D. We need to drive down the costs of, of different technologies. Solar and wind have come down a lot and renewables will help a lot, but we're going to need a broader set of technologies, including hydrogen for the hard to abate sectors. Like how do we make cement and steel? How do we power airplanes? Um, we're going to need to broaden the set of technologies uh, available to us. We're going to need to re, re, you know, climate change is such a hard problem to solve because it's the ultimate tragedy of the commons global problem. It doesn't matter in the, where a ton of CO2 comes from. So it's a the collective action problems with climate are terrible. So to solve it, you need really strong international cooperation and diplomacy. Obviously, pulling out of Paris is the wrong thing to do. So we need to re-engage uh, there. We need to focus on non-CO2 greenhouse gases, like reducing methane uh, emissions. Um, we need, so I, there's a broad range of things that that, that I would do. And, and those are just some of them. I think investments in public uh, infrastructure, mass transit. Um, this is actually a moment also when we're, we need to think about rebuilding our economy coming out of this economic collapse. The cost of government borrowing is very cheap. Let's think about some of those things that will pay long-term dividends like investments in energy innovation or in clean energy infrastructure. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, I would be remiss if I uh, didn't get to ask two quick questions just about personal preferences. So one, do you have any big book recommendations besides uh, Daniel Jurgen's The Prize, which a lot of energy scholars do love talking about? And then two, is there any, as a head of a global energy institute, do you have any specific countries that you really enjoy looking at. Obviously, you're you're an American scholar. You've worked in American administrations, but there's scholars from all over the world that you're working with every day. So, is there any specific country that you love looking at, and um, that that you would recommend taking a look into for a young energy scholar? <laughs> uh, this is a good question. So, the um, yeah, I mean, Daniel Jurgen's the prize is like a, a classic. Obviously, I've read it a bunch of times. Uh, and 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 uh, and focuses on the geopolitics and the history of oil. His mm -hmm. ne his next book, The Quest, is also interesting and looks at a broader set of energy tools. Um, I think Dan wrote a book in the late '70s with a grant from the Ford Foundation before he wrote the prize called Energy Future. It's actually a really interesting book in historical context to see in the late '70s how people thought about what the how we define the problem. It wasn't about climate change back then. It was about oil security and air pollution and, and, and how they saw the future of what technologies, whole chapters on efficiency and solar, the same thing that if you read not a book, but an article 
the famous Amory Levin's foreign affairs article about we could take a hard path or a soft path to meet our, our, our energy goals uh, is really good. Uh, and then I think, I don't know, there's not one book, but there's different kind of, I think energy falls into a diff- few different categories. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago by Richard Rhodes, a uh, great author called Energy, A Human History kind of starts in like Elizabethan England with extracting coal from the ground and goes up to the present. And it really helps understand how transformational the ability to extract energy, largely hydrocarbons, has been to human development, but also all the harms and pollution that have come with it and how we've addressed those. Um, On the geopolitics, Megan O'Sullivan at Harvard wrote a great book uh, a year or two about that. On renewable energy, Varun Sivaram wrote a book called Taming the Sun from MIT just a year or two ago. Uh, Peter Fox Penner has a great book coming out soon on clean energy and the electricity grid and smart grids. Those are some more recent ones. Um, I guess there's no there's no one country. I mean, if you're studying um, some of the stuff we talked about, looking deeply at countries that are important to the history of energy in the Middle East, we talked earlier about Saudi Arabia as one of those. The geopolitics of that, I think, is 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 quite uh, interesting. Um, But I also find it really instructive to look at countries that are on the leading edge of the energy transition that we need to be undertaking. Some of the Scandinavian countries, how they've thought about investing in um, clean energy renewables. You go to, you know, Norway and half the cars are electric vehicles now. Uh, Denmark turned their national oil and gas company into an offshore wind company um, I, I, I think uh, it's also a beautiful part of the world, but they, it's interesting to see how some parts of the world are that are on the forward edge of how we think about what this transition needs to look like uh, are are doing. What they're doing is really interesting. Uh, and then, and then, lastly, I would just say, you know, the future of whether the whether we whether it's make or break for climate, you need to look at emerging markets, right? It's South Asia. It's not just China, and India, which gets all the attention, but what's happening in Pakistan and Vietnam and, and some of those, you add up all of those smaller uh, South Asian countries that we don't always think about all the time. And um, the pathway that they're on, are they going to replicate the path of growth, which has a lot of coal, uh, or are they going to try to take a different path? I think that's going to be really important for the future of not just energy markets, but of course, the environment. Uh, I know you have to go. So just one last question, uh, I guess, uh, since the name of our show is policy punchline what would be your punchline at, at the end and also just one last quick question for myself is that are you optimistic or pessimistic because <laughs> sometimes i look at you know some of those uh, esg funds or, or impact investing or when i look at uh, those things I, i'm somehow skeptical and and you got people like uh, a lot of fund managers will basically say you just won't be able to generate the same returns and the power people say yes you would and there's kind of this whole you know tug of war going on between people saying yeah you're not seeing oil demand coming down anytime soon and there are people who say oh we're about to reach that energy uh, renewable energy future in like five to ten years so i i i don't really know what what do you what do you say <laughs> well i think you know for a podcast called policy punchline for someone who runs something called a center on global energy policy. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have focused my career on policy if I didn't think it was necessary. And by that, I mean, I think there's a lot of excitement and very encouraging developments where you see companies promising to decarbonize the, you know, I, the world economic forum in Davos this year almost felt like a climate change conference, you know, the head of BlackRock and, and all these big investment banks talking about the urgency of climate change. And that's very encouraging. It's not sufficient. We're not going to change at, at a system-wide level how people 
you know, not just a couple of big actors, but millions of companies and individuals produce and consume energy unless we fundamentally change the economic incentives and internalize social costs. I mean, the problem is right now, every time we make any decision to what kind of car we buy, what kind of house we build, where we build our next factory, we're making decisions regarding energy that impose harm on other people, right? What economists call negative externalities. And the history of the environmental movement is that we can deal with these when policy requires us to take account of those social costs and make different decisions. Either how much we use and consume or different technologies will become economic that otherwise uh, wouldn't be. I think we can be pretty innovative. It turns out the history of the environmental movement is one where we've been able to achieve our environmental goals much more cheaply than people at the time thought we could because innovation kicks in. But that's not going to happen without policy. And I think my optimism that we'll get there is, uh, is I mean, I, don't, I mean this sincerely, is like talking to young leaders uh, like, like both of you and the students we have at Columbia's School of International Public Affairs and elsewhere. Just the, the passion and the wisdom uh, that, <laughs> that young people have is really quite inspiring. Sometimes I look at my friends, I go, we're so screwed. There's no <laughs> way we can get out of this. I mean, we're... <laughs> Anyways, thanks so much for joining us remotely, Professor Bodov. It's uh, such a great conversation. To, to... Thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you. you. Be well and stay healthy. And thanks for inviting me. Of course. And thanks so much for joining me, Owen. And, and, and uh, hope, hopefully we can have more of those conversations as uh, Professor Bodov told us to do so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Anyways, uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please. Uh, and also, Professor Bodov, one last thing. How can people learn more about your work and your uh, podcast? Uh, energypolicy.columbia.edu or just Google the Center on Global Energy Policy. And we have a little link there called Podcast, and you'll find it there. Or, or uh, just search Columbia Energy Exchange. Perfect. Thank you so much for, for joining us again. Thanks so much. Uh, Thank you. Thanks. All right. Uh, thank you. I'm a little late for this call, so I'm going to jump off if that's okay. Of course. Uh, I really appreciate the help today. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Good to talk with you. I'll, I'll just do a quick uh, – I'm still on recording, so I'll just quickly wrap up. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, listen and review and, and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, I'm get, getting a little bit stutter at the end, but uh, you know the drill. Uh, rate and review us. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.